This is Ozarks at Large for a snowy Wednesday, January 25th, 2023. I'm Kyle Callums. I'm Matthew Moore. This is 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Today, before it was a sitcom that we watched on Netflix, Kim's Convenience was a play. Theater Squared's production opens this weekend, and we'll talk with the director and associate director about the play they call Small But Mighty. That's in about 15 minutes. First... Heavy snowfall blanketed parts of our region yesterday with an estimated 4 to 7 inches across parts of northwest Arkansas and 1 to 4 inches in the Arkansas River Valley, according to the National Weather Service. And those wintry conditions are causing power outages across parts of our listening area today. In Arkansas, more than 100,000 residents were without power this morning, with nearly 20,000 outages in Washington County alone. Ashley Harris is Vice President of Communications with Ozarks Electric Cooperative. She says nearly 7,000 of their customers have reported a power outage. You know, it's, it's pretty sporadic. Um, you know, you'll have a neighborhood with just a few people out, and then you'll have a grouping somewhere else. So it's, it's kind of a, a wide net across our, our territory. But with 90,000 meters, and, the, you know, we have, you know, about six or 7,000 out right now. And it, it just, it's just going to fluctuate throughout the day. She says down tree limbs and compacted snow are mostly to blame. It's because of that very wet and heavy snow. You know, it's built up on the trees. Trees pull down, hit the lines, and they break. Um, and then, of course, once that snow melts, those limbs are going to snap back. <laughs> and guess what's going to happen? So, Harris says Ozark Electric has a 24-hour dispatch center, and new crews went out at 6 a.m. this morning and will rotate throughout the day. And so they're finding fuses blown out and, and things of that nature, as you typically would with a weather event like this. But we are in that phase now where the, the lines, you know, it is melting. So we're in that second part wave of power outages that will be restored pretty quickly um, once everything kind of kind of off. She encourages people to report outages and downed power lines and give crews access to property if necessary. You know, if they see a downed power line, certainly stay away from it. It can certainly still be live, and we don't want anyone to get hurt, but give us a call and let us know it's there, um, but certainly do not um, try to approach it. Just stay, stay away, and, and we'll be there to take care of it as soon as possible. Uh, but we do have other ways that you can contact us. You know, you can look at the My Ozarks app to check on the outages. Um, you can also report an outage, outage through the app, or you can also uh, call our member services line as well. For more information about outages in your area, go to Power outage.us. The American Lung Association released their State of the Tobacco Control Report for Arkansas, evaluating progress on policies and funding in the state. The report is in two parts. The first part offers grades from A to F on items like tobacco prevention, smoke-free air, and cessation services, with the second part providing policy suggestions for the state legislature. I spoke with Laura Turner, the Senior Manager of Advocacy for the American Lung Association in Arkansas, and she says none of the grades are too surprising to her. But as far as something I think we can uh, work with for Arkansas is a comprehensive smoke-free air law for the state. There's a lot of loopholes in it, um, a lot of exemptions, and, you know, we got a C for that. So that is a little, (laughs) we're doing better than other other areas of uh, the report. But, you know, I think that's just, uh, you know, a little encouragement to even try to improve it more. So if we can include um, casinos and all workplaces, basically, would be ideal so that more 
Arkansans can be protected from secondhand smoke. As I'm looking at the report here, it looks like restaurants, bars, and casinos all uh, fall under the restricted category as opposed to prohibited. Can you talk a little bit about how in 2023 we still have bars and restaurants that allow smoking? I mean, if I knew the answer to that question, I'd probably, uh, you know, have figured out how to stop it. But no, I, people have their people are free, which is one thing. But um, I, I don't know. I, I think um, looking here at the restriction requirements, it's uh, that they restaurants and bars that don't allow people under 21 to enter um, have that. That's they're allowed to have smoking. But yeah, I, I don't really know the answer why, but I can say that it's time for us to um, move forward and do better for for workers who are in those locations. Yeah, because I think a lot of times when we think of those sorts of situations, we say, well, you don't have to go to that bar if you don't want to. But a, a, a person who's employed by that bar may not uh, clearly doesn't have that option, right? Exactly. Yes. And especially when we're talking about rural communities places with maybe fewer places to work and if there's further away to get to it's not a matter of just going and getting another job all the time especially if you're maybe in a casino community and that's the major employer there so but there's some other you know key things to think about for the overall report some big focuses that we are working on you know we look at the federal government as well not just Arkansas and so and that of course can trickle down to work that's done in Arkansas and um, protecting people from tobacco use. So three of the most significant steps that have been made on tobacco control nationally are um, there's been a proposal in the sale of menthol cigarettes and flavored cigars that happened in April 2022. So pretty new and kind of in process, but the final rules are expected in early 2023 about menthol and flavored cigars. And what's key about that is that um, flavors are what attract kids. Menthol cigarettes have been disproportionately marketed to minorities and um, vulnerable communities. So, um, and there's, you know, history of that sort of marketing and and menthol. There's a lot of reasons why it's a lot harder to quit. As I look at the report, another area that sticks out to me is uh, cessation services. Could you talk more about what services could be offered to raise the state's grade higher than a D? This area looks at what is generally what's covered by insurance and what um, is covered by the quit line. We specifically look at state Medicaid program, the state Medicaid program, which includes the Medicaid expansion population and state employee health plans for the insurance as kind of a um, measuring stick for the expectations for other insurances in the state. And Medicaid's doing a lot better, you know, way fewer barriers. There's Medicaid expansion, which is good because that means more people are protected or more people, sorry, not protected, but they have um, access to those resources to help them quit. What could be improved is covering all kinds of counseling for cessation for quitting smoking. Right now, um, it's definitely through the quit line. You can get that that counseling, and they do a stellar job of it. But our kind of benchmark for counseling for cessation is to also have individual and group counseling covered by insurance. I think there's probably cases where it can get covered under those insurances. It's just not 
clear enough or delineated enough that the providers know that for certain that they can get paid for it. <laughs> so that's definitely an improvement because we know that um, the best practice for helping people quit smoking is um, FDA approved medications like the nicotine replacement therapy or a medication to help quit smoking plus counseling. For some people, individual is better. For some people, group is better. So it's really good to have those options. And one more thing to add would be um, just investing more in the quit line. Right now, our investment per smoker is $1.65 and the median investment across the country per smoker is $2.37. So not a huge increase would be necessary, but with that, we could just reach more people. And I will tell you that Arkansas's quit line is a very unique one. Be Well Arkansas is a kind of comprehensive approach to disease management and tobacco cessation along with that. So it's very holistic and they carry, they, uh, one of the unique things they do is they have one counselor that keeps with the person the whole time whenever they call. So they have that kind of continuous work with the individual, which is not the norm for quit lines. They really do go above and beyond. So I think they're doing an excellent job. We just need to reach more people. In addition to offering a report card, uh, you also have recommendations for the state legislature. Can we talk about a few of those those proposals that you have for ways to, to have a better impact? Ensure continued access to tobacco cessation services for all those who want to quit smoking. And so I think that means maintaining Medicaid funding, maintaining the Medicaid expansion program, which covers, you know, other people, many of them who need help quitting smoking. And lastly, we want to see eventually that preemption on tobacco control, local tobacco control authority would be repealed. That's not an overnight thing. That's kind of a long-term goal. But what's happening now in Arkansas is that local communities can't set their own ordinances that are stronger than um, the state level for like um, sales of tobacco. And if they wanted to do like a flavor restriction, that isn't being, that isn't able to be done on the local level because it's can't be stricter than the state. So that's what the preemption issue is. Long term, we'd really like to see that change just so communities can take those steps they need to, um, you know, help their community be healthier, be healthier. Laura Turner is the senior manager of advocacy for the American Lung Association in Arkansas. She spoke to me over the phone earlier this week. Yesterday, the Arkansas Senate advanced legislation to put new restrictions on drag shows across the state. Josie Lenora with our partner KUAR in Little Rock has more. Senate Bill 43 passed with 29 votes in favor and six senators voting against it. The bill would require performances involving cross-dressing that, quote, appeal to prurient interests to be classified as an adult business. Debate on the Senate floor focused on the bill's vagueness and the meaning of the word purient. Republican Senator Gary Stubblefield sponsored the bill and spoke about the dangers of allowing children to witness drag shows. He said drag performances could confuse children about their identity. Senator Clark Tucker, a Democrat from Little Rock, said he has many problems with the bill. The truth is that this bill is not about governing. It's about bullying. And if you don't believe me or agree, all you have to do is look at the language in the bill. Tucker said the bill would violate the First and Fourteenth Amendment of the Constitution by targeting someone's gender expression. He accused fellow lawmakers of supporting big government at the expense of freedom something Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders vowed to fight in her inaugural address. 
Stubblefield responded, explaining that the bill was backed by his Christian beliefs. It now goes to the House for a vote. In Little Rock, I'm Josie Lenora. Two institutions of higher education in Arkansas are partnering to offer a new degree program to students in central Arkansas. Officials from the Hot Springs-based National Park College and the University of Arkansas at Monticello yesterday announced they're partnering to offer a new bachelor's degree in business administration. UAM Chancellor Peggy Doss says the partnership has many benefits, especially for students. But it's also an opportunity for collaboration that uh, boosts academic offerings for institutions that may not be able to do that on their own. Uh, it's also an opportunity that we truly began to define new pathways in higher education where we can serve students in ways we've never served them before. Uh, and to do so in such a way that's cost effective. John Hogan, president of National Park College, says business degrees are in high demand among his students. But he says more partnerships could be in the works at the community college. Our success measures always the completion of our students, their success. We're having discussions about additional disciplines, and I think there's demand for that. Our students have asked us for additional disciplines, so stand by. Hogan says students who graduate from the four-year program will receive both an associate's degree from National Park College and a bachelor's from UAM, with all coursework being completed at the NPC campus in Hot Springs. Classes for the degree program will begin next fall. Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. You can hear Morning Edition tomorrow from 5 to 9 on 91.3 KUAF. Tomorrow morning at 6.30 and 8.30 during Morning Edition, you can hear Community Spotlight with Pete Hartman placing an emphasis on nonprofit work throughout the KUAF area. Still to come on today's show, how can the arts further efforts of diversity, equity, and inclusion? And for the first time ever, there was a bassoonist. Uh, I played a bassoon, a bassoonist from Argentina that was sharing that experience with me that gave a recital and performed a piece by an Argentinian composer totally based on salsa rhythms. I grew up listening to salsa music. Rachel Sanchez-Smith and Dr. Leah Uribe lead a conversation about broadening the musical landscape and how broadening that landscape can have a larger effect on society. Ahead this hour. Just announced, experimental American musician Beck comes to the Walmart Amp with indie pop band Phoenix, returning to Northwest Arkansas for one night only, Friday, August 18th. Tickets go on sale this Friday at 10 a.m. at amptickets.com. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. Kim's Convenience ran for five seasons, originally on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation and is available in the United States on Netflix. The Kim family, a Korean immigrant family, operates a convenience store in a Toronto suburb, and the sitcom has earned praise from critics and a loyal fan base. Before it was a television show, Kim's Convenience was a play written by Inns Choi. That play will open this weekend at Theatre Squared in Fayetteville. Yesterday, director and associate director Nelson T. Eusebio III and Eileen Rivera respectively, came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. Nelson and Eileen also happened to be married. Nelson directed a previous production of the play in Connecticut, and Eileen, an actor and not usually a director, says she remembers her husband's experience with the play. And so I had seen it 
and you know he tells me all the time anecdotes about what he needs from a production or how it's going and I thought well I can be your associate director because I already know what you want from this from your production so um, it has been a very steep but very rewarding learning curve this whole three week four weeks what does being an actor help you do as an associate director I feel like a lot um, uh, he what the biggest thing I had to do in this production was run the entire first week of rehearsal, which was very scary. Um, I'd never done anything like that. I had to be the director for the whole first week, um, which is different than other weeks, you know, because um, I'm the first I'm the first and only voice everybody's hearing that whole week. And um, I'm uh, yeah, it's just a big it's just a big uh, ask. And um, uh Oh, and, and as and so the first week is full of like script analysis and finally getting on your feet very tentatively. What are you feeling? What are you doing? And as an actor, um, I, I can talk to the actors very much about um, context and background and character. Um, it's just that that the difference is I'm very invested in all the characters as opposed to just funnel tunnel visioning my own. Is that freeing or is that a little bit? Um, intimidating. It was intimidating until I was doing it. Then it was natural. I, I, you just are invested in all the characters. It wasn't. Um, I didn't have to like s- switch on a different part of my brain or whatever. And then, and then one thing, one thing I did, in, I did enjoy in this month is not having to go home and learn lines for mm. anybody for anything. <laughs> it was great. Or learn a dialect or any of those things I, or a song. You know, some right. the things that I have to do for a character. Right. So, what attracts you to this script? Oh, gosh. Uh, I was a big fan of the Netflix TV show, um, and it's done a lot for Asian American representation in the media. Uh, And then I received an email asking me if I wanted to direct the play, and I wasn't really... I remembered that it was a play, but I didn't remember very much about it, because the original 2013... Uh, Soul Pepper, which is a theater company in Canada production, had come. Soul Pepper did an entire residency at the Signature Theater in New York, like two or three months, and they brought four, five, six different shows, and they ran them in repertory. And Kim's Convenience was one of them. Uh, in fact, Estin Fung, who plays Jung in our production, saw that saw that show. So, I was a fan of the I of the show of the TV show, but I didn't know the play at all. So I said. I'm a fan, send me the thing, I'm interested. And then reading the play, which is very different in many ways, and certainly in terms of the, it's still a comedy, but it's not that like half hour, but um bump, you know. Set with up, the set sound, up, punch. Yes, with yeah. the set up, set up punchline with the laugh track and the, you know, the transitional little cute music music tone. Um Anz has written a, a play play, you know, it's an hour and you spend, or an hour and a half, I yeah. guess, at this point, uh, that you spend with these characters, and there's much darker aspects to it, and I don't mean to make it sound like Kim's is this, like, you know, uh, Eugenio O'Neill drama, <laughs> but there are definitely aspects of that that inspires no inspires no one in his community as he examines what it means to be first-generation Korean-American Growing up, Canadian. Sorry, Korean Canadian. Um, growing up with parents who don't speak English as their native language, what the Korean community has done during that time. Also, the effects of gentrification that were happening in Canada, and specifically in Toronto at that time. So there are numer- numerous themes I think that still resonate today, and 
Inns and I, I remember having a chance to speak with him when we were doing the Westport production, and I said, you know, in the time that we're in, which, keep in mind, was just last year, Asian American violence in New York City had risen 300%. I said to him, do you really feel like Kim's is the right thing for us right now? And he said, you know, we sing the songs that need to be sung, we tell the stories that need to be told, and we remind people of our humanity. And I think that that's exactly right for, for the time. So both from a personal standpoint as a child of immigrants who has grown up in the Philippines, or sorry, grew up in Philadelphia, but my parents are from the Philippines, um, I resonated a lot with that part of the story. And certainly as I, I came to it as a fan, but discovered this really beautiful, lovely play. Um, so it's been a, a real treat. Most people who see this, if they're familiar with Kim's Convenience, will be the Netflix, mm-hmm. the, the Canadian show. And you mentioned the ground it covers and why that resonates, but there's also a universalness, right? To, yes, to ab- absolutely. I mean, gentrification can happen in Canada or Fayetteville, yeah. Arkansas. Or, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, uh, there is a, a Walmart name drop, so I'm curious <laughs> to hear how how Fayetteville how that's audi- yes, how Fayetteville <laughs> and audiences w- will receive that. But also, it's about we talk about this all the time in, in the rehearsal, but it's about fathers and sons and fathers and daughters and mothers and sons. And there's deeply universal themes about, you know, disappointing your parents, but also making your parents proud and also wanting to strike out on your own and mm-hmm. and carve your own path just, that is different than what your parents knew. And I feel like our, many generations, are many people, many families can totally connect to that. When you've directed a production in one, on one stage, in one venue, and you move to another, what changes, if anything? Many things change. It, it, in this case, the cast is, well, is different, yeah. and that, that is a huge part of it. Yeah. Um, in From a technical standpoint, our set has shifted a little bit um, so that the sight lines are a little bit better. The, the theater squared stage is a little bit larger, and it's in a three-quarter formation. So we have better sight lines. I get to make prettier pictures from a staging point of view. We have a different sound designer on this production, so the, the music, um, he's... Our previous sound designer was uh, African-American, and our current sound designer is Connor Wang, who is uh, Chinese. And Connor has really gone, for the music, has gone into, um, what's it called, chill hop, as well as... Like Korean-inspired chill hop kind of stuff. Yeah, as well as um, Korean, um, not like hip-hop, but I keep trying to remember what the music is at the beginning that he has broken Right, down. I forget also. He, yeah. <laughs> but right. yeah, very Korean-influenced, not very subtly, though, not, not um, yeah. just um, uh, music and underscoring and stuff. Yeah, but I would say the biggest change, to be honest with you, is the cast, because theater is so personal, and yes, they're all saying the same lines, but they're filtered through every different artist, and so what Greg Watanabe brings is very different than what David Shee brings and what uh, Esten Fung is bringing to it is very different than what Hyunmin Rhee, who played played it for us in Westport. And certainly um, our Uma in Westport was actually Korean and was first generation. So we didn't spend a whole lot of time teaching her how to speak in a Korean accent. Uh, Karen Lee is a wonderful, beautiful actor. And, but we've had, you know, we had, to send her to, Korea, to our Korean dialect coach to be like, we need you to learn this accent. Also, there's lines in Korean, so we need you to learn those too. Whereas, 
you know, Chucha was able to improvise in Korean. Uh, we didn't know what she was saying, but, you know, <laughs> that was that was part of it. So I would say the biggest change is the actors, um, other than the small sort of technical differences that I've I've covered. I asked Nelson what he liked about the script. Now that you have worked with it in this capacity, what do you what do you find? Um, there's so much heart and there's so much that I can relate to also as a child of Filipino immigrants. A lot of there's so much um, rich subtext and um, just un, unsaid feelings that you can just see and feel when you're watching the play. Um, it's it's a it's it's a tiny but mighty play. It's short, but it it earns all the heart that it gives you. The punch, um, the punches of heart that it gives you, and um, it's very funny. And it's um, yeah, it's just a a lovely little play that I did not expect to fall in love with so hard. You know, this is I think only the third American created production of this play, um, and. We were just commenting, many of the, the, the cast members in this play, and I have professional history that goes back almost 20 or so years. Um, and what's been so rewarding is to get to reunite with people here, um, and especially in a time where our community, the Asian American community, feels very under attack. Um, for us to be able to come together and celebrate with this really wonderful play and to get to create the work has been deeply rewarding and so the only other thing that I would sort of express about that is that we're very thankful to to Bob and for to and Martin and for Theater Square because the play that was supposed to originally be in the slot was Poor Yellow Rednecks and that play I mean what a time to be living during a for Asian American theater uh, which is our little hub of the thing we do regular theater as well but um, we both grew up in Asian American theater I used mm-hmm. to run an Asian American theater company and you know, we were just commenting how the idea of multiple productions or or we're not going to do this particular uh, play, but we're going to do we're going to replace it with another Asian American play. We're going to have Asian American directors and they're they're on stages in Chicago. They're on stages in New York. They're on stages in Kansas City. They're on stages in Fayetteville is unbelievable. What, what, a, what a time. There's finally an Asian American theater canon that's living and breathing. Um, and at, when I was a younger actor, it was like, um, maybe I'll get this ethnically ambiguous role in this play or lean on or play Latina or something. And now it's like, oh, I did that Lauren Yee play and you did, you know, in this state and you did that Kui Win play in that state. I did that Mike, Mike Lou play in Theater Squared and you did the same Mike Lou play in another state. And now we all um, are having that time, which is really, really, really exciting. Welcome back to Fayetteville. Thank you so much. Welcome to Fayetteville. It's been a pleasure. And thank you both for coming in. Thank you. Oh, thanks for having us. Nelson T. Eusebio and Eileen Rivera, our director and associate director of Theater Squared's production of Kim's Convenience, opening this weekend in Fayetteville. More information at theater2.org. And you may recall we talked with the playwright of Flex, Candace Jones, and actors in that T2 production. It was about five young women who were basketball teammates in rural Arkansas. Well, that play first developed as part of Theater Squared's new play festival in 2021 and later produced here is now getting a new production at Lincoln Center Theater in New York. We'll watch the play's progress and report on further developments. FrostFest returns to the Washington County Fairgrounds February 4th from 2 to 7 p.m. 
This outdoor beer festival features over 40 local and regional breweries, vendors, food trucks, live music, and more. Proceeds to benefit apple seeds and barley, hops, and water. Tickets at fossilcovebrewing.com. This is Ozarks at Large. The latest episode of the podcast, Reflections, produced in conjunction with KUAF, features Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith and Rogelio Garcia-Contreras, Director of Social Innovation for the Walton College of Business, speaking with Dr. Leah Uribe, founder of Reflections and host of our regular Thursday segment here called Sound Perimeter, as well as Stephen Bias, Music Director of the Arkansas Philharmonic Orchestra, and Engage NWA's Margo Lamaster. They all talk about the reimagining of Vivaldi's The Four Seasons into The Four Seasons of Latin Jazz and what diversity and equity work looks like through creative justice. Helping me moderate today is Rogelio Garcia Contreras, Director of Social Innovation in the Walton College of Business, and he's a part of our Reflections team. And our speakers today include Stephen Bias, Music Director of the Arkansas Philharmonic Orchestra, Margo Lamaster, Margo is the Executive Director of Engage NWA, and Dr. Leo Uribe. Dr. Uribe is the founder of Reflections and chair at the Department of Music for the University of Arkansas. And in this last episode, we focused on breaking traditions, specifically highlighting diversity and how breaking those traditions can lead to better representation. We continue that conversation, but now pivot to how diversity, equity, and inclusion work can be done through the arts. The circles around art that exist have existed for, 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 for a long time uh, in this country and other places. And, and this maybe. Uh, you know, I guess it's a question for Steve and, and for Yulia, but what would you say about those that say, what an insult to Vivaldi, right? What, you know, what are you doing with the Four Seasons? You know, that's, that's not supposed to happen, right? There's, it's, it's called classic music for a reason, right? So what would you say to that? Stephen, what would you say to that? <laughs> I, have, I have so many responses to that. Uh, you know, the... the um, the 
idea that music was supposed to be one way or another, I think is just is rubbish. Uh, I, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about what if Mozart were alive today? What if Beethoven were alive? What if Bach or Vivaldi or, or what if Lawrence Price could come back now and visit her works? Uh, how would they embrace the 21st century with their own music? Every, all music was new at one time. And it's remarkable that the majority of the pieces that we consider to be mainstays and masterpieces of the repertoire had horrible introductions. And the reception in the beginning was just terrible. And, and people began to embrace them. Uh, and over the centuries or the decades, suddenly they were they thought about being great works of art. But many of them, the majority of which began life as just something that was just terrible. Composers thinking that they should stop writing music or they didn't have any talent. And yet uh, the idea of flexibility and uh, in, in embracing other cultures. We have somebody like Franz Joseph Haydn, who worked in the Esterhazy court, and wrote 104 symphonies, who embraced his local Hungarian uh, culture and incorporated these things into his music, or Béla Bartók or Stravinsky, the ever-changing chameleon who was putting in different influences. Hétor uh, Villalobos, uh, the Brazilian composer, wrote this famous set of music called the Bacchianas Brasileiras, where he took Bach-style music in through a Brazilian uh, mode in language, very much like the Four Seasons of Latin Jazz, and somehow made this music more accessible and more approachable and, and uh, available and more consumable to a wider audience. I, I think that all music uh, can, can certainly serve this way. And of course, there, there are those things like the famous disco version of a fifth of Beethoven from the 1970s and, you know, taking these works of art and you think, well, could a work of art be too famous for its own good? I don't think so. Just the familiarity allows more accessibility to it, even if people bastardize art in certain ways and make disco versions of, of famous uh, orchestral pieces. But it's, it's, it's really, there's nothing that should be considered to be one way only. And it's like any community that thinks they, they don't really need to be diverse and equitable, or, or if they think that perhaps we don't have a problem with racism, those are the very communities that really need to look the deepest and, and perhaps uncover that <laughs> there are lots of reasons why they should change their thinking. Um, I know I'm jumping around in that answer, but that excites me a lot. And I have, I have lots to say about that. <laughs> Well, I'm thinking also that music is not a static thing. I mean, every time, if we stay with Beethoven Fifth, that we play and play and play over and over again, a beautiful piece of music, we play it a lot, every time it's different. We have different musicians, we have different um, stages, different acoustics, so music changes. Music has changed. Listen to a recording from that very same uh, piece from 30 years ago to today. It sounds different. Technology has aided into um, you know, perfecting or changing the uh, aesthetics. So music is ever changing. Um, I like, um, I'm thinking, as, as you were talking, Stephen, I was talking about Pepe, that says he's not an arranger, he's a disarranger. <laughs> so he took uh, this piece by Vivaldi and just made a mess of it uh, in his own words uh, with his own accent. And it's a different piece. Yes, it reminds us of something, but it, this is Pepe's piece. I'm curious, Leah, to bring it back to something you said earlier, kind of this seemingly the the idea that audience are passive 
this passive role that they have in the consumption in the industry um, and absorbing creative um, creative outlets in any form. How passive really is the audience in that and how do we kind of dismantle the idea of this passive nature to it? It's by challenging our audiences with new material, with new ideas, exposing them to uh, new realities. I mean, uh, as much as, I mean, I am classically trained. All my degrees are in performance. Uh, it took me many, many, many years to uh, find my first piece for bassoon written by a woman. Uh, not until 2015, I was brave enough to go with that piece to an international stage uh, to perform and to talk about it. Uh, talking about it, um, the teaching artistry, I think that is a very important aspect of us as musicians as, uh, and for our students as well, teaching them and training them to be able to go with these ideas and talk about it, to have an argument, to have a um, uh, connection with the audience. So they are educators, they're not only performers, they're actually instilling these ideas and explaining. There's a lot of explaining to do because the four seasons are in our ears. Beethoven fifth is in our ears. There's no much to say, right? Or at least we think there's no much to say because our audiences will go automatically to see those um, pieces. But when there's a new, brand new piece, a piece that deals with a different language, uh, musical language, um, a piece that is just written in the last few months, we have to provide a context so people can actually identify themselves and understand that this name they might be have not heard about this composer before, but understand why we have chosen and what we have to say with that piece. So there are many ways through education, through conversation, and through challenging. I think there's fear from some of our organizations, some orchestras as well, uh, because we're used to certain demographics that supports um, our, our orchestras, our institutions. So we don't want to inconvenience them very much. Uh, but I think that we have very smart audiences, uh, capable to embrace new musics, um, hopefully and will willingly to uh, expand their musical horizons. So it is on us. Uh, Stephen, you do a lot of that with the uh, repertoires you choose, and you do a lot of engagement with the audiences when you are conducting, you talk to them all the time. Uh, yes, uh, Leah, and I agree with everything you just said. Um, orchestras are... Uh, and it may be odd for me to say, but orchestras are fortunately now under intense scrutiny from philanthropic um, foundations and government agencies, both locally, regionally, and nationally, to address diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it is, uh, uh, it's prompting many orchestras to have the conversation. But again, I'll say all music was once new and it deserves to be heard. Uh, in February, for example, the Arcazza Philharmonic is presenting a program of three works by three living composers. Uh, one of them, a Puerto Rican composer. It's significant because it's a black composer writing a piece for flute and orchestra. The, only the second black composer to write such a piece of flute and orchestra. Uh, and a female composer named Jennifer Higdon, who is a, a really wonderful composer. But it's it's crucial that we do this instead of just programming a, a, a Beethoven, which I love, or a Mozart, which I also love. Uh, but it's 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 a time when it's important, just essential, to challenge our audiences. One of the programs we do also is is a um, program called Link Up. It's administered by Carnegie Hall in New York City. And Rachel, your question about passive consumerism 
in the audience is perhaps most significant in this program because children, grades three to five, are taught to read music, to sing in four languages, English, Latin, Spanish, and Brazilian Portuguese. And then they learn to play the recorder or a string instrument and sing. And then when they come to a performance, the culminating aspect of the project is not to sit and absorb what the orchestra performs passively, but to actually perform with the orchestra. And Lee has participated in some of these programs. And until you've heard 1,200 kids playing a recorder at one time, it's hard to describe <laughs> the experience. <laughs> but the moment you go to them and say, what was your favorite part about the concert? It's always, well, when I was singing this or when I was playing recorder, what was your favorite instrument? Well, I think it was the recorder because I was playing. It's the active engagement and involving uh, what we do with music. And, and most of what I've talked about so far has been for our adult patrons in the region, but children and education is such a powerful part of what all of us do and all arts organizations are doing. And that is one way, is the engagement so that there is actual active engagement rather than just passive consumerism in the museum, at the concert hall, at a dance recital, wherever it may be. Margot, you direct an organization called Engage, Norway's <laughs> Arkansas. It's, and Steve was mentioning, it's essential to bring this diversity, equity, and inclusion. Is it essential for, for our region, Margot? Well, yes, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, if you look at how much our region has changed and the fact that we want to continue to be welcoming to newcomers, um, that, yeah, it's it's crucial and it's, and it's crucial that we have that intentionality behind it. And I love that you've been talking about actually you needing to create these spaces. And, um, and that's a lot of the work that we do on the regional level, too, um, when it comes to serving in that convener role and that connector role. Um, and having, you know, Rachel, you talked about starting with a conversation. Um, and and in, in a lot of ways, those conversations aren't happening. And so if they aren't happening, then how can we help to, to support them to happen and, um, and then then to see, I mean, it's, and then it's too just about that relationship development. And um, it's just crucial, I think, to work no matter what you're doing, that you have to have those authentic relationships um, and they don't come organically. It takes intentionality and it takes effort. Um, and so it's, yeah, that's, that's definitely what we want to see more and more on, on the regional level. And we've got, we're growing so rapidly. And so it's important that we really lean in here to this to this work, yeah. And also to think about the diverse communities that we have already in this area. Those are the ones that we really need to go and explore and ar uh, ask the questions, ask them what they want, what they need, how can we support them from the arts. Something that was really obvious to me that we have discussed many times in other podcasts, reflections, and, and, and our conversations is that direct line between um, us as artists, the platform we have to actually get to people. We have already that built in. Many people go to your uh, concerts, Stephen, right? So you have a voice. When you talk to them, you know you're going to have a public. You're going to have an audience that are going to pay attention to your words. All of us as musicians, as artists, have the same platform. So using those, but intentionally going to those communities. Um, there have been many conversations about place making and bringing people from the outside to share the arts and um, to, to bring richness, but I think uh, part of that conversation is also 
place keeping and it's also place knowing. We need to get to know our communities. We need to go to them. We need to bring them to us and go to them more importantly and uh, involve them in the conversation and uplift their identities. Uh, that's what we do in the arts because of this given platform. How do, first, how do we change and how can we create some of that disruption and recreation of these structures and systems that we've had in place for so long within kind of the el elitism in, in the musical hierarchy? And how do we validate um, the work that's being done? Is it a popular work? And what does that kind of look like? I feel like a spy many times <laughs> because I am a minority at many levels. I bring many identities and uh, to have a loud voice, it has taken, in, taken me a lot of time and uh, you know, I privilege as well. I have to say that fortunately, I have a very pri privileged uh, place being a professor at the university, being a musician in these orchestras, uh, having access to the microphones through KUAF. Um, so because of that, I know that my voice has some strength and I take advantage of that to represent other voices, to bring other voices to, uh, to talk as well. Uh, but it hasn't been easy. So I feel like it's, it's navigating this, uh, you know, very fine line. How much can you disrupt and come back? How much are you going to be punished with that? Uh, I have tenure at the university. That's a great tool to do things, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a fine line. It's a fine line. But you need to take some risks sometimes. And we do it all the time. And we do it all the time. But also, it's important to once again talk about the power that people that don't have our identities, people of dominant identities, they need to take into that responsibility because they are less fragile than we are in many aspects. And also, I have to say that this work is deeply emotional. I don't, get, I don't get just emotional because of the happiness or the, um, the music itself. It's because it touches the moments in which my family or my people, my communities have been diminished or have been uh, you know, set apart, not having access to the things that they should have ac uh, had access. So this is personal. It's a work that is very, very personal. And at the core of reflections in our team, I think we all have felt that in one way or another, and that unites us and uh, allows us to really really push hard to move the change. But you were talking about systemic level change, and that's where we need to go, right? We can, this can be a project, and let's do another concert with a diverse composer. That's not enough. Projects are not working. This is a process. This is an educational process. This is about going to Stephen and his power over the orchestra to program new things and to educate the kids that are coming. This is going to the board of directors of different organizations that are making decisions about uh, how much are the tickets or how much, uh, how are you gonna open a brand new hall where, you know, in Springdale. Who we're marketing to, who is the targeted audience in the first place for exactly. the people who are taking up those spaces? Who is seated on those decision-making tables and why are they there and who are they representing and what, how much do they know, again, back to that place knowing and people knowing and community knowing. Leah, we talked a lot about representation and it's a core kind of fundamental value in, in diversity and inclusion. You know, we've mentioned it as a part of the orchestra, as a part of the audience, um, and in our own personal experiences, seeing ourselves represented from different demographics and seeing audience, audiences having the privilege of seeing themselves um, 
reflected in an orchestra in a different setting, um, but still be authentically themselves. And I'm curious if there was like a point or a moment um, through your career where you're like, that's it, I found somebody, or that, that moment resonated with me. Oh, yeah, I've had a few of those. Uh, <laughs> I, was, I was living in Canada in a residency at the BAM Center for the Arts um, before I came to the States to work on my master's. And for the first time ever, there was a bassoonist. Uh, I played a bassoon, a bassoonist from Argentina that was sharing that experience with me that gave a recital and performed a piece by an Argentinian composer totally based on salsa rhythms. I grew up listening to salsa music. Still to today, I prefer La Fania All-Stars above all the beautiful composers of my classical tradition as well. So to see those rhythms there, and I was there thinking, I cannot believe this is happening. This is the first time that I, can I do that? So I went immediately to order the music and to learn that piece. And I play that piece every time I can because it's my childhood, my upbringing, my memories, everything, my identity is right there. I had to learn how to find myself in the Mozart Bassoon Concerto. And I succeeded for the most part, but it's much easier for me to find myself in the piece that shares something that is mine, right? And I think that is the right that is being taken away from many of us when we are forced all the time to center our whole education and our whole training around just one type of composer and one identity composer. So that's just one example of these many, you know, uh, eye-opening situations. Uh, But to your point, Stephen, as well, you know, it's important to have uh, diversity in the orchestra, but that diversity comes with also cultural representation, right? I can see it in many orchestras as a Latina woman, uh, but if nobody's playing my music, and that doesn't mean anything to me. I'm I'm helping the orchestra check the box of uh, diversity, but I'm not finding my own voice over there, right? So the work is from many, many corners, many, um, many, many perspectives. Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith spoke with the Reflections team. Stephen Bias from the Arkansas Philharmonic Orchestra and Margot Lamaster from Engage NWA. You can hear the first part of this conversation on KUAF.com. Jill Weber-Lenz is a professor and associate dean at the University of Arkansas School of Law. She's an expert on legal recognition and treatment of stillbirth and has written about it in the context of tort, remedies and criminal law, maternal health care, and reproductive rights and justice. Something that's really frustrated me about the abortion debate for a long time is that pregnancy loss is not in the picture because the anti-abortion side wants us to believe that every pregnancy not terminated will end up with a living baby. And the abortion rights side wants us to believe that every pregnancy not terminated will end up in forced parenthood. The millions of pregnancy losses that happen every year are just erased. More recently, her research in this area has led to examining the legal ramifications of abortion, especially in light of the U.S. Supreme Court's decision overturning Roe v. Wade. You can hear more in the latest edition of Short Talks from the Hill, a research and economic development podcast of the University of Arkansas. Listen at KUAF.com or wherever you get your podcasts. This is 91.3 KUAF. Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Snow. And I know what you're thinking. The broadcast signal, the over-the-air signal, probably doesn't reach Snow, right? I was thinking yeah. that. Uh, do you know where Snow is? 
Yeah, it's in my front yard, my backyard. <laughs> if you are headed east mm-hmm. across the north northern tier of Arkansas, uh-huh. the Ozarks, uh, let's say you're driving on 412. Okay. And you want to get to Bull Shoals quicker, and you don't want to have to go through the traffic of downtown Yellville. Yeah, that's been a, a big issue of mine. You bet. You go left, mm-hmm. and uh, on your way to Summit, ah, you'll you'll go through snow before you get to Summit. Okay. In the winter, do they change their name to water? <laughs> I don't know. I could have gone with Snowball in Searcy County. Yeah. North of Witts Spring. Uh huh. Sort of south of Pindall. Yeah. I would like to know which is bigger, snow or snowball. They're about equal size. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll right. we'll have to we'll we'll report live soon. <laughs> uh, I do know snowball is harder to get to than snow. Yeah, because it, it takes a Searcy longer. County. Searcy County. You know, that's some of the rugged, beautiful Ozarks. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, contributors today included Rachel Sanchez-Smith, Leo Uribe, Rogelio Garcia-Contreras, Josie Lenora, and Daniel Carruth. Daniel provided us news about power outages. Additional content today also came from our partner station, K-A-S- KASU in Jonesboro. Matthew produced today's show in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Kyle, we talked about power outages. Did yes. you experience some power outages yourself? Uh, yeah, from about 9 to a little after midnight, and then uh, again in the morning. Somewhere, but it was it was before five because I have a radio that comes on when the power comes on, even mm-hmm. if I've turned it off. Yeah, and Peter Vandergraaff was still on when it came on. So yeah, a couple times. Yeah, there was a my wife saw a map this morning that showed where the power outages were. I'm just north of campus here in Fayetteville, and there was a giant batch just mm-hmm. to my west and just to my east, and there was this tiny little sliver, and that's where my house was. Living right. That's, that's what right. you're doing. That's right. Um, and again, if if you have any questions about power outages, because we'll probably have some more today, you can go to poweroutage.us. We return tomorrow with a new Thursday edition of Ozarks at Large from downtown Fayetteville. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Please be careful out there. Uh, not a lot of melting going on today. No. I think tomorrow's high is... Mid to upper 30s? Yeah, that's that's what I've seen. And if you got something scheduled, check, because I don't know. Um, probably not a lot happening tomorrow either. Yeah, I would doubt it. This is a very heavy snow, so yes. it's, uh, it's not moving anywhere fast. All right, be careful. Stay home if you can. I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. We'll talk to you tomorrow.